Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Our next guest is important because a year and two weeks ago, Lael Brainerd was at the Booth School uh, seminar in New York. Obviously, it was, you know, pandemic and all that. And Michael Ferroli, Kim Schoenholtz, Catherine Mann, and Steve Cicchetti wrote a definitive paper on the tools that we have forward on monetary policy. We come forward 54 weeks, and it's a whole new world after all. Michael Ferroli joins us this morning with J.P. Morgan. Michael, the paper that you wrote at the Booth School seminar of 54 weeks ago, is that paper true today? Are you and Bruce Kasman working off a new playbook? No, I think, I think the results uh, from that paper were actually put into... Uh into use a few weeks later, right? So uh, that paper focused on the tools, what we have that the Fed has when uh, in a low interest rate environment and we, hit it, we come to a recession, which is forward guidance and quantitative yeah. easing. They used both those tools very aggressively. Uh, and one of the tools that we recommended, uh, and most economists I think recommend, we weren't alone in this, is uh, outcome-based guidance, which is basically saying when the first hike will come is gonna be based on certain economic conditions, which the Fed put into place uh, last September. What is so important here, and I believe John Farrell mentioned it an hour ago, where the United Kingdom envisioned sub-2% GDP out a number of years as well. You own the study of potential GDP. Do you look at 6 or 7 or 8% GDP now? Is one quarter, two quarters fade out? Or one quarter's two quarters in a real abrupt drop down to where you see potential GDP? So, first of all, I, I should say we see uh, GDP growth this year around 6.5%, uh, but we also see above-trend GDP growth persisting uh, next year. So a lot of the stimulus that we're expecting uh, should be somewhat delayed. So, for instance, a lot of the aid to state and local governments won't necessarily get spent quickly. Uh, so that should support growth uh, on into next year. Uh, but, you know, I think when we get to perhaps 23 or 24, it's reasonable to expect uh, a return to sub 2% uh, GDP growth, which is probably still the uh, uh, the potential GDP growth rate of the economy. Tom kicked off this hour talking about the Simon Kennedy article about the savings rate, about the glut of cash sitting in savings accounts. In the U.S., he pegs it at $1.5 trillion. And then there's this nugget, that if everyone were to spend all of that money, GDP would run at about 9%. If none of it were spent, it would be 2.2%, a huge spread there. What gives you confidence that people are going to go out and spend it, and on what? So, uh, first of all, I would say a lot of that saving is uh, accumulated stimulus that wasn't spent last year. Uh, but we should keep in mind that it's very likely that we're going to see further stimulus this year, right? So now we have potentially $1,400 checks coming uh, perhaps within, within a couple of weeks. And we saw last year a lot of those uh, $1,200 checks were spent pretty quickly. Uh, this year we would expect the same, perhaps even more so, because unlike last year, those checks may be coming at a time when the economy uh, is reopening and, and you can actually spend on a lot of things that you couldn't spend on last year. So it's not simply the fact that we have a lot of accumulated saving, but there should be more income support forthcoming uh, that I think should be the, the really uh, 
big stimulus to growth this year. Mike, give me a second. I just want to run through the price action at the moment. Up seven yeah. basis points on tens, up six on thirties. And the Nasdaq does roll over, Tom. Nasdaq futures now yeah. down by 36, call it 35, and off by about a third of one percent. And just one observation, John, we go back to where we were on Friday. We've given up essentially Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of dynamics. This is the outlook gets better. And Mike, let's put some numbers on that better outlook. You've mentioned GDP growth. I read a note from you guys in the last couple of days, 685,000 monthly average for payrolls growth for the rest of this year. That just fa sounds absolutely fantastic, Mike. Are they the kind of numbers you're looking for now? Those are. Uh, two things I would say. One is that there's uh, a link between GDP growth and job growth, uh, which, or at least between the unemployment rate, which is called the Okun's rule uh, that economists use. Uh, in addition, I would say that relative to that, uh, to that sort of rule of thumb, we might see more than uh, one might expect in terms of job growth because we're going to see a lot of sectors come back. We should see a lot of sectors come back that are things like restaurants and movie theaters that might be, you know, services tend to be a little lower than average productivity, but that means you're going to have higher than average uh, jobs per amount of GDP growth. So, uh, so I think we're set for a very good year in terms of uh, job growth. In addition, the participation rate we, we anticipate will uh, mostly recovers some of the gain, uh, some of the losses it suffered over the past 12 months, uh, in part because those who are uh, concerned about face-to-face you know, uh, -face job seeking can actually get back in the labor market, as well as hopefully the normalization of school schedules should allow uh, you know, parents to get back into the labor market. So it should be good from both the perspective of the number of jobs uh, created as well as you know, the amount of the, the population that's actually back in the workforce. And perhaps markets have already priced this in, at least if you look at the equity valuations that we're looking at. And the question is, what happens 2023? What happens 2024? even 2022, and whether there is sort of an ongoing virtuous cycle that gets created by some of the stimulus, by the job creation, and growth can go a little bit faster than people currently are expecting. What's your view on that, given the sort of consensus that we will see a slowing out of growth, a slowing out of inflation, and a return to the environment that we were in pre-COVID? Right. So as Tom mentioned, you know, we have been somewhat cautious on potential GDP growth, but there have been some develop developments that have been uh, I think favorable when thinking about the longer term outlook. One of those is that capital spending has really recovered uh, quite robustly, uh, particularly spending on tech, R&D, things that tend to be sort of high productivity uh, um, categories of spending. So I think that's one favorable development. Uh, I think if we do get an infrastructure package later this year, which seems, you know, uh, likely, uh, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that infrastructure uh, is good for the, the economy's long-run growth rate. So there are still a lot of negatives out there in terms of slowing uh, growth in the labor force that will you know, keep trend GDP growth definitely below 3% and probably below 2%. But there have been some favorable developments when we look at the productivity picture. Mike, I want to finish up on the bond market. We've got a 30-year at 225, tens at 146, yields bleeding higher again. Chairman Powell tomorrow. Do you expect Chairman Powell to stay on script? I do. I think he's going to remain quite dovish. Um, I don't know if he necessarily is going to have to fight the market per se, but I think he wants to, uh, he'll have to reiterate that they're going to hike only when they are confident that inflation is going to be above 2%. And right now it doesn't look like the inflation markets are pricing persistent above 2% uh, PCE inflation. So I think Powell will have to address that, uh, uh, that perhaps misperception in the market that they're going to be uh, quick well, to tighten even when there's no <clears throat> inflation pressure out there. Dr. Ferroli, I want to steal a phrase from Jean-Claude Trichet. 
And that is the idea of diffuse. He was talking to me about productivity diffusing. What is the diffusement of stimulus? Do you and your combine over there under Bruce Kasman, do you have a confidence in knowing how stimulus will diffuse through the American system? Uh, I don't think the economics profession really has a lot of confidence in, uh, in understanding uh, stimulus to, you know, to the decimal point. Uh, we do think it will um, obviously boost spending, particularly the stimulus checks, uh, and that should help uh, the overall economy. And once we kind of get out of um, this patch we're in where we still have a lot of excess labor resources, that should help a, you know, a broad set of, of sectors in the economy. But you know, I think we do have to be humble and kind of putting too much uh, false precision on our understanding of how fiscal stimulus affects the economy. 200K, the number for Friday, Mike? Uh, for Friday, we're looking for 200,000. Okay. Uh, yeah. Mike Farrelly, good to see you, sir. As good always, JP Morgan, Chief, US economist, looking for 200,000 on Friday. It's Alicia Levine, Bank of New York Mellon, Chief Strategist, joining us now. Alicia, great to catch up. Let's just start with the S&P 500 struggling at 3,900. What's going on? Well, what's going on here is the rotation trade and, and higher yields and a steeper yield curve because the, the sectors of, of the market that are outperforming and are quite strong are not the ones at the, at the top of the index. So all those large cap tech stocks have really peaked out on a relative basis in the summer of 2020. So as they struggle, the index itself will struggle, but there are plenty of sectors and plenty of companies that are doing great year to date that, that are having very clear bull markets. And as yields move higher, and as, as we have expectations for higher yields, those, the, the tech and the growth sectors as large cap names that really led right. last year are going to struggle. They're just going to struggle and that's affecting the index. Alicia, you do the macro micro with such acuity. I want you to dovetail the easy call on the macro with the reality of micro adjustment down the income statement. Are we at the edge of too good to be true? So that is the great question. I think this year we're going to see a little bit of a bifurcation between Main Street and Wall Street. And last year was an amazing year for Wall Street and for asset classes because we sat on yields. And this year, it's going to be a very difficult dance for the Fed and actually a very difficult dance for the bond market because if we actually print 10% quarters of GDP a couple in a row, double digits, which I think could happen given the spending and consumption numbers we're seeing, I think it's going to be very hard for yields just to sit there and for the market to believe that the Fed isn't going to move sooner. That's the dance that the market has to absorb. We do think that the economy will reopen. You can feel it everywhere, even in the middle of New York City, where I am. You know, you feel it happening. Right. Spring's coming. People are getting inoculated. And it's happening sooner than I think right. we, we had hoped for six weeks ago. Alicia, Robert Schiffman over at Bloomberg Intelligence does a brilliant piece today on how tight the big tech bond credits are. They're shockingly tight. Surprisingly, Amazon actually doing, you know, on the edge of Apple uh, in tightness as well. They're up to their eyeballs in cash. What do they do with the cash? And particularly across the market, what do they do with all the new cash? 
Look, that's a great question. We think overall in the aggregate with all the new cash that's raised, you are going to see a lot of M&A, which will help support markets here. But I think I, I think ultimately, you know, the cash is going to be used for buybacks and things like that and investment because th this is a great investment year for those companies that have large cash surpluses. Change the business, grow the business, add businesses. This is really the way to use it to look forward. We, we're kind of concerned about those favorite names that supported all of us last year during the misery we all experienced. It's kind of clear that the growth year over year is going to be slower this year. And I think those names are going to struggle. We love energy. We love financials. Invest with the yield curve. Think big, big economy, boom in the economy yields moving higher and pick those old economy stocks that everybody gave up for dead for years and years and years. You know, value hasn't outperformed since 2007. There are many investors who don't remember a time when those stocks in the old economy actually worked and gave your performance. And here we are and it's working, not to mention the under allocation to energy across the investor space because of ESG concerns and investor concerns. I mean, this is the sector that's outperforming. Outperforming and underowned, there's your pain trade. Alicia, I don't want to say that I'm Debbie Downer. Again, I go back to trying to see around corners because I think that that's sort of more how I'm playing this. But let's say the consensus is wrong. And let's say yields, instead of rising, fall. They fall to 80 basis points, as Greg Peters of PGM was saying, uh, could very well happen earlier, as we've seen uh, Scott Miner of Guggenheim say that he could see uh, yields going close to zero next year on the 10-year Treasury. Let's say that the structural story here of an aging demographic of slow growth reasserts itself. What happens then? How violent could the move be, given how crowded this consensus that we see today in the market really is? Look, that's really the left tail risk, and it could be a violent move down. You'll see a rotation very quickly back into those defensive favorites of large large cap growers and tech. But also, I mean, but that is really the risk here. You know, the the variance. Whoever invented that word was the scary variance. I mean, that's that's really the risk, and also that there's there's stasis within the labor market, and, and that bottom twenty percent that has really been affected by unemployment and the closing of the service economy doesn't really quite come back. So maybe you get 50% of those jobs back, maybe 75%, but what do you do with the rest? And the re it's very clear that retraining is not something this country does very well on a short-term basis. So then you do have a permanently unemployed. That is the risk here. Um, we do think though, there's so much forward momentum in the next few months. And I think the desire to engage with the service economy is palpable, it's real. And so I'm pretty optimistic about what happens with the labor market going forward. Alicia, love catching up with you. Alicia Levine there, Bank of New York Mellon Chief Strategist. John, is there a beige book with the Bank of England? They do have the report, the agencies around the country report back, yeah. Something similar. So like, you know, Tottenham's terrible, they report that. Something like that. Very you get the North thing. London report. Yeah, on the Jose. Derby report. Back to the Governor Bailey. Report, yeah, we often do that in London. We're wasting get, time to get to our wonderful let's guest. Let's get to the question of this morning <laughs> with Greg Peters of PGM, Senior Portfolio Manager. Greg, we've been asking this all week about PGM. Yields touching 160, 161 on Thursday. Have you been a buyer? Yeah, so we've been poking around. I mean, it's been definitely an interesting journey, right? So, I mean, our view, you know, above 125, it gets more interesting. Kind of 150, uh, you know, even more interesting, uh, uh, and then 
you know, 175, very interesting. Uh, and so that's kind of how we're thinking about it from a scale. I mean, what happened last Thursday was less about kind of the level of yield, but more what happened in the market itself, right? The market really had a whiff of March uh, 2020, where there was just a lot of dysfunction in the marketplace, tremendous illiquidity. Uh, so those are the things that we were really more attuned to. But at the same time, it has created, I think, dislocations uh, in the curve. And so mm -hmm. there's been lots of talk about the seven-year auction and how that tailed and quite frankly, how worrisome that was. The 20-year part of the curve, treasury curve, is also very interesting. So to me, maybe it's not so much about the overall level of interest rates, but really the dislocations across treasuries themselves. Within that, we go back to basics, Greg Peters, and there's an idea of the nominal yield, the regular yield, the 1.44% yield, folks. And around that, the dynamics of inflation and what's called the residual, which is the real yield. It's a show on uh, Bloomberg TV. Greg Peters, which matters right now, the inflation dynamics or the residual, the real yield? I think the real yield matters more here, uh, as that'll actually act as a binding constraint around activity, I think, uh, and borrowing. And so you've seen this real move uh, in uh, inflation, right? So inflation was priced clearly too low in March of last year. It was absolutely on the floor. So it's been moving higher ever since. But I really struggle with this narrative that inflation uh, is really going to continue to pick up. Uh, so, so I'm I'm kind of on the other side of uh, inflation continuing to rise. Will it be around the two percent level? Yes, but it's not going to be well above. Uh, and I hate to talk about base effects, but there are real base effects coming through here that gives the optics of inflation being much higher than it really is. And the Fed is telling you that. And no one wants to listen John, to this. This is Fed. so, 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 so important. Lisa, I can't say enough about this. Five year, five year forward says exactly what Mr. Peters just described. Yeah, and that's what we've been seeing with respect to short term inflation expectations versus long term inflation expectations. The curve is inverted the most ever on record, which raises a question. Could we actually see 10-year Treasury yields drop to new lows at some point? And this seemed to be what Scott Minard of Guggenheim was saying yesterday in a report where he was seeing saying that even 10-year Treasury yields could go negative at some point. I mean, Greg, are you on that side of things that we could see an actual rally that is pretty significant in Treasuries? Or are you just saying that perhaps it's gotten a little ahead of itself in terms of the sell-off? Also, I'm not willing to say negative at this point. I mean, let's get below 1% and then take it from there. Uh, so I think that's somewhat heroic, but I think the, uh, the direction of travel is right, uh, but the timing's tricky. So, so we think the natural resting place for 10-year treasuries uh, is around 80 basis points. Uh, so uh, that's not to say it's going to happen over the next several months as the forces with stimulus and just the economic rebound is so strong. But I think when you look out, you know, 18 months, two years, I do really see an environment where yields will continue to kind of move lower. So timing's tricky, but I do think the direction of travel is for lower yields, not higher yields. Greg, the south side, and this is not a diss on the south side, they often predict high yields, but gradual moves. And I think on the buy side right now, there's more attention being paid to that volatility, that burst of vol we got last week in the Treasury market. And whether we see repeats of that, I think Apollo in the last 24 hours, speaking to Bloomberg about this, how to take advantage of those bursts of volatility in the future, Greg. Can you walk me through how you approach things last week and how you'd approach things in the future if you expect to see that again? Well, quite frankly, it's, it's tricky, though, uh, because the markets have a tendency of seizing up. And so if there's 
dysfunction and dislocation in the treasury market, which is uh, the most liquid market uh, uh, in the world, in the U.S. for sure, uh, everything sets off of that. So what we saw in March of last year was it all started with treasuries and then the illiquidity broke down everywhere else. So quite frankly, it's difficult to do. That being said, the derivative market uh, is where you continue to see real liquidity uh, in times of stress with cash. So uh, I do think, though, if you get these gaps in trading, kind of these vacuum moves, which, you, which we didn't really see, um, uh, that will create opportunity because I think the whole world on the buy side is waiting for credit to cheapen up yeah. uh, because uh, you know the strength of the economy uh, is such where you really want to own it. Mm-hmm. Greg, always good to see you, sir. Greg Peters, PGM, Cedia Portfolio Manager. Right now in commodities, and of course every major house is really looking at the idea of a super cycle, the nuances of commodities, the metals, the softs, and of course oil lifting. Francisco Blanche rides a herd at Bank of America uh, Securities, head of global commodities and derivatives uh, research. Francisco, to cut to the chase and to paragraph one, are we re-seeing now a new commodity super cycle? Uh, hey, Tom, thank you for uh, having me. Um, I, I do think we are seeing uh, definitely upside pressures. And in some cases, across the commodity complex, we could see um, super cycle-like behavior. Uh, but I do, th- I do think it's going to be more concentrated on the metals. Um, unfortunately, I, I, I don't see that cycle uh, happening in oil. I do see upside pressure on, on oil prices. But as you know, oil is the main commodity. Uh, it's the largest portion of the mm-hmm. uh, commodity market value. So, and it's going to be hard for oil to see the kind of super cycle we uh, witnessed right. in the uh, 2000s. Off so. the metals, then, how do you apply capital on a bet of the Pacific Rim? Is it as simple as buying renminbi? Is there something more nuanced if you believe in a metals play? Um, no, I mean, I think you can, you, can buy, you can buy industrial metals for sure. Um, you know, we do like copper a lot. We, we also like uh, uh, nickel, although we think it's a little stretched. Right now, uh, we think aluminum will perform well. Um, and then, of course, there is also some of the precious metals that are used in uh, new technologies like silver or uh, platinum, uh, palladium. Uh, so so we, we like those metals um, and, uh, and, and think those have uh, still significant upside over the course of the, uh, of the next few years. But, um, but uh, you know... That, that's kind of the most direct way to do it. And then, of course, there is also the, the, uh, the equities in that space, which I think are also also interesting uh, ways to, to, to lever into the metal story. Allow me to but jump in, really Francisco. Energy, yeah, yeah so. I need to bring in the China conversation as well. What's your read on what's yeah. happening with China right now? And can you be this constructive on metals, on the miners, when the recovery in China is really maturing at this stage and not accelerating? Um, I, I think you can, because remember, uh, the metals are not just about China. It is true that half of the world's uh, metals demand comes from China. But uh, what we're going to see in the next few years is uh, a huge transformation towards um, the electrification of uh, transportation, the electrification of industry, and also the uh, decarbonization of electricity, net- electricity networks. And those three elements are uh, very, very metals intensive. So in my mind, um, metals still have, uh, I think, uh, quite, a, quite a run ahead. Uh, energy is probably going to run too. And remember, uh, as those vaccines get more and more distributed, and we heard from President Biden yesterday that we may have uh, vaccines for the entire population by May. 
uh, in the U.S. Um, Johnson & Johnson is going to really accelerate the uh, vaccination process with their vaccine. That, that could also lead to a pickup in, uh, a pickup in, in uh, mobility around the world. But uh, the, the thing is, we have 10 million barrels a day of spare capacity, 10% uh, of, of uh, supplies still spare in the case of uh, transportation fuels. So that's going to, I think, lead to OPEC tomorrow uh, opening other taps and tempering the price appreciation. But, but you'll still see, I think, the commodity cycle moving higher, with uh, particularly with all the monetary and fiscal stimulus that we've seen so far. Well, let's get to some numbers this morning. Brent 63.93, WTI 60.88. Francisco, where do you see this topping out? What are the limits of this rally? So we think for this year, uh, the limit is about $70 a barrel. Uh, so we don't see a lot of upside. And we think that OPEC is going to be quite careful, uh, trying not to breach that $70 uh, level on Brent, uh, because obviously that could trigger a fair amount of um, response in, in the U.S. shell patch if, if they did. So uh, I do realize producers are, are trying to be disciplined, but, but obviously there is uh, something called price that can, can change the... the yeah. Francisco, the actually, can you elaborate yeah. on that, this idea of the price point at which shale comes back into the picture? Right. Well, so remember, uh, the curve is, is in very steep backwardation. Um, so the spot price is very high relative to a forward. If you look at prices for oil five years out on WTI, they're actually under uh, $50 a barrel. So um, what, what we think is OPEC wants to keep the curve in backwardation. That's definitely a key objective of the group. They, they want to collect a high price on a spot basis and give shale players the lowest possible price on a forward basis. Um, and, and again, uh, this means that, that they'll try to keep things relatively tight. But, um, but I, I do see eventually over the next three years, there's a risk, as I mentioned earlier, if demand accelerates beyond our expectations. And remember, the next three years are going to be the fastest three years of oil demand growth since the 70s, simply because we're coming from a very low base. Uh, but if, if we overshoot, that's where I think the, the upside risk over the next three years could be up to $100 per barrel. So that's, that's our view, that we could see up to 100 if uh, demand uh, conditions really uh, stand up to... to uh, uh, this level, so of nine plus million barrels a day. Francisco, can so you talk a little bit about the dynamics of what that would look like, that upside surprise in terms of both GDP growth, in terms of the recovery and in international travel? What would we have to see to get to that $100 a barrel? So I think, as I said, for, from, a, from an oil demand standpoint, we would have to see over nine million barrels a day of growth. We would have to be above 2019 levels uh, from a demand standpoint by the second half of next year. So again, relatively quick acceleration, um, and we will also. That's from a from a oil consumption from oil consumption standpoint. <clears throat> from a GDP standpoint, um, again, our, our U.S. economic steam is calling for U.S. GDP of six and a half percent this year. Um, some of this spills into next year with growth potentially in the three to four percent range. So if if that's the case for the U.S., the world follows along. We see a relatively uh, weak dollar on the back of that. Uh, because some of this U.S. growth feeds into international uh, uh, demand for goods, as, as we've seen so far, and that feeds into a stronger Chinese balance payments. Um, together with uh, EC monetary policy, all, all of that can, can actually trigger us to that, to that higher level from a macro standpoint. So it's, it's those three things, really. It's, it's improving micro fundamentals. It's continued EC fiscal and monetary and it's, of course, uh, continued improvements in China's balance of payments. Those are the three key elements for, for a continued commodity rally.
Francisco, just a final question from me, just to wrap things up on the metals market. How supply responds there? Because they've been disciplined over the last few years because they got burnt coming out of 2011, 2012. Do they maintain that discipline? Do you see them doing that, this story of value over volume that really started with Rio and BHP several years back? I, I, I think they, they do. I think they do. And I, in fact, I think what the metals, I mean, ultimately, remember, one thing is very different than metals versus energy is uh, metals don't have something like uh, U.S. shale. U.S. shale is yeah. short cycle. Uh, it can respond within six to 12 months. Nothing in the metals world responds in six to 12 months. These are very, very long investment cycles. You're looking at seven, 10 years. So uh, <clears throat> even if they responded, they still probably respond by, by the end of the decade. And, and, and by then, uh, we will have maybe 20, 30% of vehicles uh, being sold into the market will be electric. And, uh, and that, that's going to create some serious bottlenecks in the, uh, in the metal space in our view. I think we saw that from Volvo yesterday, looking for an all-electric yeah. fleet by 2030. Francisco, great to catch up with you, sir. Francisco Blanche there, Bank of America Securities Head at Global Commodities and Derivatives Research. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.